In order for us to get to middle income status, we really have to look at addressing the gap between look at the resources allocated to our biggest economic sector, which is agriculture. And we have to move the our budgets to reflect the importance of that sector in terms of the value that is extracted from it. Do you aspire for a booming middle-class economy? Listen along to understand what turns the wheels of Uganda's economy with our lineup of credible influencers in their fields. Shout out to Zakmo Abdurrahman for working on this audio. You are doing the most. Thank you. Today we are very privileged and we'll be delving into a new pepper toward a new model for African agriculture. It's the subscription model for farming in Uganda. And this is by Teddy Bridge, founder and CEO of RT Farms. Patriots, if you really want to find out about this paper, you can check out the show notes below to follow the conversation. So a while ago, I think when Kampala geopolitics was still a thing, there was a lady in the crowd who mentioned that farming is not sexy, right? The younger generation in Uganda is not encouraged to get into farming because most people probably have land bare land that they could cultivate develop but it's not that appealing so she was mentioning that they needed to have more talk around farming becoming very enticing for young people we're very lucky to have teddy on here to explore the potential solution for uplifting ugandan farmers and moving the country towards a middle-class economy you know patriots this podcast is about finding out what fuels the wheels of our economy. Teddy, what is the importance of implementing sustainable farming practices? You are a farmer here in Uganda. What have you noticed in this ecosystem? Why is farming important? The world needs to eat. I think the difference in just subsistence farming, which is essentially the activity of growing your own food, versus commercial farming when you're growing food for other people to eat because obviously not 100% of us are farmers or subsistence farmers. However, in Uganda, over 70% of the workforce is in agriculture. The reason that I'm in agriculture is because I feel that there is a disconnect between that figure of 70% of our adult workforce or even underage workforce being in agriculture is because it doesn't really reflect in our GDP. When you look at our GDP and the contribution of agriculture, less than 25% of it comes from agricultural activity, meaning a lot of our activity is subsistence farming. So not very much of it actually ends up in the commercial hands for distribution and further economic activity like value addition and manufacturing and agriculture. My job as I see it is essentially to contribute to improving those statistics, making sure that that 70% is a lot more productive, thereby contributing to the country's GDP, thereby the growth, and thereby getting us closer to that middle income status. Just to break it down for our listeners, Teddy was a consultant with the World Bank, but then he took personal interest in the plight of the Ugandan farmers. Tell us about how you started helping farmers organize themselves around a crop that was easy to grow in Masindi. There's a famous thing that says that change starts at home. 
And my mom lives in the village. And every time I would come to visit her, of course, I would you know, hear all of the stories about what's going on in the village, what the issues are, and of course, being a progressive woman. So she was always... She was always looking for solutions to help women in the community, to help farmers in the community, just to help her community, period. When I was at the World Bank, I would come and visit a few times a year. And every time that I would come, she would have inquiries and questions about how to help her develop the community better because she was the LC1 in the community. She was very focused about women's and farmers' empowerment, etc. So we looked for solutions to help farmers earn better from what they know how to do, which is farming. And the more that I looked into it, I got a lot of interest. I fell in love with the problem. Do we help African farmers earn more from the thing that they know how to do? Farmers grow up essentially learning how to farm from very young. And they end up being a knowledge transfer on the trade from when you're young to when you're an adult and you're bequeathed that piece of land, you continue cultivating the way you have learned how to do it. And the challenge has been that as we develop, the world develops, the effects of climate change has made it impossible for us to follow our tacit knowledge in farming. We knew that on March 10th, the rains began. We knew at the end of November, the dry season began. But now these days, sometimes those very formally predictable dates are no longer predictable. You know, sometimes the dry season goes a month longer or the rain season goes two two weeks longer. So everything has been thrown off. So we need a different paradigm in which African farmers to be more productive in the fields. And in this paper, you found a disconnect between the available lucrative markets and the inability of farmers to connect to them. Would you elaborate on that? One of the things that I realized, obviously, is that the available international markets that we do have, however much the government was pouring farmers to plant this crop or that crop because there was available international market, didn't have the expertise to actually address those markets. Just because a farmer knows how to farm something doesn't know that they know how to do value addition or are actually able to do value addition themselves. When I was reading that paper, it took me back to Bushenyu. Every time you go to see my grandmother, she has a new plant, Ringa, vanilla, all those things were a thing at some point, coffee. Yeah. It really made sense every day. Yeah. yeah, and that's exactly it. When I was talking to my mother and I would come and visit, that's exactly the experience that I would actually get. For example, I found her one morning weeding her aloe vera. It was a strange plant. I'd never seen it before. It looks exactly like pineapple. So I was just like, are you growing pineapple? She's a little, she says, no. I was like, what is this? And she said, well, this is aloe vera. I was like, oh, so are you going to sell it somewhere? And she said, yeah, I'm waiting for market. I was like, how long have you been waiting? She says, two years. So you've been taking care of a plant for two years waiting for market. She says, yeah, you know, the government said there's international market for aloe vera. But what yeah. the government doesn't tell you or provide you resources for is how to access that market. So when you have 7 million smallholder farmers who can grow this, less than maybe 5% of them can actually do the value addition to that particular crop in order to actually be able to access the market. So there's a knowledge gap, massive knowledge gap between the available farmers and the markets that are being marketed towards them to grow crops for them. So they rely on middlemen to actually be able to come in 
and purchase these products and actually get those products to market. But middlemen don't care about farmers. They only care about maximizing their profits. So they squeeze down on the farmers and yeah. those promised market prices that they wanted, middlemen and old farmers are desperate. So they're going to pay as little as possible to that farmer. And That's the end result, farmers are literally going to abandon that crop because when they look at the money and the effort, they'd rather grow crops that they know they're at least going to eat. And if I can't make money, let me spend my efforts on securing my food, making sure my family is able to eat. So commercial farming is really difficult for our smallholder farmers to actually get into. The other thing that we also don't understand is that just because the available market is there doesn't mean any one single farmer can actually access that market. For example, it has a $7.1 plus billion international market. So any one farmer is not going to fulfill that market. The average farmer has one acre. In order for you to fill a container, you need at least 200 acres to process that moringa powder into a container to actually be able to ship it. So when you look at the fact that the average farmer has an acre and a half or so, you need to aggregate those farms into a collective collect yeah. those raw materials, process them, do value addition, certification, testing, quality testing, et cetera, marketing, really et cetera. That's, that's a lot, a lot of, of work. So, especially you know, for all the way in, up in the countryside coming to Kampala. Now we're lucky some of the systems have been digitalized, but the analog way of mm. doing things, that could take people months and months to get all those certifications. Yeah, not only the certifications, but just the paperwork to export. You remember the, before the, this digitalization process, um, over which literally has been happening over the last five years, before that, a farmer, say in Google, if they wanted to export something, first had to travel not to Kampala, but to Entebbe, to Ministry of Agriculture, get a bunch of paperwork, then go to Kampala, wait on a bunch of paperwork, go back to Gulu, process their shipment, get it back to Kampala, then hope that it actually gets to Mombasa on time, etc. So it was really, really difficult. Farmers don't have that expertise. They don't. So you need a company to stand in between to actually be able to aggregate those farmers, their efforts, et cetera, into one collective so supply chain to be able now to maximize their effort and leave them to concentrate on the thing that they actually know how to do, which is farming. So you yeah. give them a little bit of guidance and a little bit of assistance, like inputs, training, certification, pay them fairly, and you focus on manufacturing and export and value addition procedures. And eventually you have yourself a fairly good industry. It's possible yeah. here in Uganda. Why Moringa? So in that process, as you just said, when those farmers like in Busseni, that every season there's a new crop in the field, we went through that process of looking to see which one of these commercial crops actually has potential and benefits and which one would be the best to actually work with. So aloe vera that I mentioned before, we immediately eliminated it because it was too expensive to process. By the time we did the value addition to it and getting it ready to export, it was twice as expensive than what was already available on international markets. We couldn't uh -huh. export it. We couldn't export it to North America because South America supplies the majority of the aloe vera to, to that region very cheaply. We're also landlocked. 
So yeah. a lot of factors came into deciding, okay, which crop do we go with? And the most versatile one and the best one to actually work with was Moringa. Moringa grows very well here. It's easy to maintain. It's drought resistant and you only plant it once and you have to harvest it up to five times a year. So it was a very easy crop to standardize around and build the model that we built because it's so easy to do. When you pick a crop, it has to have a balance between easy to grow, but also has a massive market if you actually align everything correctly. So the challenge was getting enough farmers. Remember, they had already been burned by the fact that Moringa was introduced, and then everybody ended up saying, ah, there's no market for this. But the truth was... There wasn't market for unprocessed, uncertified Moringa, which farmers, again, didn't know how to do individually. So a company needed to step in to actually take care of those requirements. So when we looked at the requirements, we're like, okay, we can do this. Let's standardize around Moringa because of its unique benefits for nutrition, but as well as it offered an opportunity to do value-added direct-to-consumer products that we could actually work on. And one of the first brands to actually come out from that was Quasi Beauty. You kind of dug into climate change. I thought we are quite a green country. My partner, Mark, when driving through the bypass, I told him about Uganda having less than 12% of forest cover. And he thought maybe swamps and vegetation is not part of the 12%. Do we have less than 12% of forest cover or just vegetation? No, forest cover, natural forest cover systems that are being encroached on, like Budongo Forest, for example. So the farmers we're currently working with are surround Budongo Forest Reserve. And our economic engagement directly with them is to help them stop encroaching on the forest and that ecosystem so that we are able to reduce animal, human conflict and also to provide economic sustainability for them so that there's no reason or need for them to encroach in the forest. So the land that they have, if we can actually turn part of it into sustainable commercial agriculture, we're repairing the land by adding more trees that were previously taken out. We're giving them money so there's no need for them to actually encroach into the forest for both food as well as commercial activity like trapping, cutting down wood, foraging. That program it's a whole ecosystem. It's a it really is a whole ecosystem. But the thing that we don't understand, we think that we're just being destructive. When you look at population growth versus the resources available to that population, you realize that people are going to try to do anything to survive. Like, for example, charcoal. Our grid, our energy grid doesn't reach down to that last mile very easily. So how are people supposed to cook their food? Of course, the thing that we know of is firewood, right? So we go and get firewood wherever we can. The unfortunate thing is that we've run out of firewood because of large-scale monoculture like sugarcane that essentially just flattens every tree in sight just so that they can put up large plantations of sugarcane. So that leaves the population with less and less resources to actually address their energy needs. Encroachment on any available resource ends up happening. So we essentially turn into parasites on the land. It will eat up any 
being inside because we need to survive. In order to mitigate that, we have to find and explore different economic value chains that will allow yeah. pop yes, population growth, but a balanced growth that allows the ecosystem not to suffer, but to also repair itself. Absolutely. I'm currently reading Walking with the Gorillas, and I found a lot of similarities of your approach with the SIP model, with how Dr. Gladys started a few activities to help the gorillas, first of all, but also the farmers and the community around Bwindi. But that's another story to tell. Guys, I highly recommend you checking out this paper toward a new model for African agriculture, the subscription model of farming in Uganda. So back to crazy Teddy. I like the goat pass up. I feel so beautiful and my skin so nourished. I didn't realize how rich Moringa was. You guys were really promoting the benefits of your raw material. I also found out that Quezi was a brand that was built during lockdown. So you mentioned processing and packaging, how difficult it is in Uganda. In your opinion, where is the potential there or what are the challenges? Because you mentioned you couldn't have exported because you wouldn't have gotten the value for money. Where is the potential here? Where can we fill the gaps in packaging and processing? Because it seems like you've done well with the Quezi Beauty so far. Yeah, the thing that we're not mentioning is my background is communication design advertising. So I'm cheating a little bit. When I look at product development and design, I really want to please the customer, right? I want to treat the customer as a sophisticated human being who feels respected when they're sold something that is well packaged, well thought out when it comes to the reason for the existence of that product the value that they receive when they get that product. We as Ugandans have this kind of colonized mindset where we think that which we produce is not good enough. That which we import is the ultimate, right? We have... It's not just Uganda, it's across the continent. Yeah, and with the products that I create, I am trying to say here is a product of high quality that was actually designed and manufactured right here in the country. One of the best compliments that I ever get for Quasi Beauty is when people ask me, where did you import this product from? And I tell them, I imported it from Masindi. Homegrown. <laughs> you need a visa to go to Masindi. Exactly. But unfortunately, while design can be done here, manufacturing all of that packaging is impossible to actually get high quality production done in the country. How do we match the ambition that we actually want to do? We would love to get packaging done 100% in Uganda, but those manufacturers are not here. Um, so you go to where the expertise is, where there's value for money, and the only place you can actually do that is China. So if we're going to be global players, we have to concentrate on what we can do within our borders. But because of global trade and the way supply chains work, you have to find where the best supplier for what you want to bring to market is going to be and create global partnerships to make sure your product actually gets done. If I can give an example, I think America has gone through this idealism of saying we need to bring all manufacturing back into America because China rose up and actually said, hey, we can be the global manufacturing 
hello, or the world. So that's why on the back of your iPhone, it says designed in Cupertino, manufactured in China, assembled. assembled in China, because they have that unit economics where you just, then you just can't be. They have an education system specifically geared to putting people to work on those supply chains to produce products for international markets. So you go where the expertise is. Uganda just doesn't have the packaging expertise. However much we may have designers that design really good products, but if you actually want them produced really, really well, you have to go outside to actually get that done. But the packaging is a small part of actually creating products because by the time I put that product into the packaging that I've imported from China, that supply chain has affected a number of people because for every job we create, for every engagement with the farmer in our secure income program, they support five to seven people. And that comes from the average size of a family of five plus one or two people that they may employ to work on their farm to help them with their commercial farming needs. So that's the part I really want people to concentrate on is that local manufacturing creates downstream jobs and supports entire economies. When we say that we're creating value in an ecosystem, that's where that GDP begins to show up is mm-hmm. the people that are hired in that ecosystem and the money that is actually circulated within that ecosystem. It would have been easy for us to actually be able to say, okay, let's buy a hundred acres and then start manufacturing Moringa products. And we're just going to have 75 employees and that's the maximum of our impact in the community. That doesn't really reflect very well. So if you do a social enterprise in agriculture and you engage entire communities to develop, the entire country benefits. Wonderful. Guys, I'm going to be able to link Crazy Beauty. Have a look and let me know if you want to get a product. Teddy, you have hinted on impact and I've had the opportunity to read your paper. And I encourage all of you listening in today, dear Patriot, please go download that paper and and let us know what interests you. Tell us about your experiment, Secure Income Program. How did it start about how far did the impact go in lifting the farmers within the area? Yeah, so... The genesis of that story, I was speaking earlier about finding my mom in the garden and asking her about what she was doing with this strange crop. Really, that's truly the genesis of the security income program. Because when I finally said, okay, let's look into this seriously, let's begin working with farmers. Obviously, the first thing you ask once you identify the crop is you go around asking farmers to plant something for you and you promise that you're going to purchase it for them. However much you mean well to actually get that done, it doesn't mean that the farmers actually have the capacity to carry that out. As we mentioned previously in terms of the stats, over 70% of our workforce is in agriculture, but there's a misnomer on that term workforce, right? It's the people of working age and capable working age that are you know, in agriculture, because there are no industries, they are subsistent farmers, they know how to farm, they farm for food, for survival, but their ability for them to become commercial agricultural workers, commercializing their fields is a bit more difficult because that requires financial input, which they don't have. So, You end up with with a problem. Yes, you gave them seeds to plant. Yes, you promised them market. But when you go back three or four months later, you find out they only planted food. 
they had no other additional resource to actually cultivate for commercial purposes. So this is why farmers end up giving up their land to sugarcane barons, because essentially that, that sugarcane company comes in and just rents the land and does everything else. And then they get the money every 18 months to 24 months. So we looked at that. Okay, how do we engage these farmers to help them plant for us? We didn't want to become a micro lending agency. We really wanted to do the dirty work of farming. So we came up with the idea of, okay, if we engage farmers with a very specific size of land, and we actually estimated, if you planted for us for a year, how much could you harvest from this piece of land? And could we put an economic value of that to the company? So instead of waiting for you to plant and then we come and harvest when, when the crop is ready, which is up to five times a year, we essentially aggregate the estimated harvest size and the value of what you could earn in that one year on that piece of land, and we divide it into 12 equal monthly payments. What that does for you is provide you the capital that you actually need to manage your small piece of land. And currently we're working with 250 farmers who are tending to a half acre. Um, And we're finding that is an amazing, that is a perfect size for them to actually commercialize. As we talked about previously, a majority of the farmers in the statistic own an average of around an acre and a half. So engaging with them on a half acre is perfect because they can use the other half for their household or their household food needs. But then now when you add on a monthly stipend for them to work with you, now you give them choice. Okay, do you want to use your labor to do commercial farming or subsistence farming for your food security? And then you hire somebody else to do your commercial farming. So immediately they have an opportunity to actually now begin circulating money on their own. Because if they choose to use their own house labor to do commercial farming, they can buy food, right? So the Secure Income Program was born out of that. And to our surprise, it actually ended up working out very, very well because farmers begin counting on that money. For example, when we resumed after COVID, we engaged the farmers in Pedongo Forest, and immediately we could see a change because they start getting paid after a month, which is not like any other crop. There's no crop where you start getting paid after one month. Usually it's after four or five months that you're getting paid mm-hmm. after harvest, and then you walk around looking for market, waiting for middlemen. So as we start paying them from month one. I'm not aware of anyone doing subscription farming in Uganda or on the continent, period. Maybe if you go with sugarcane, because that's more of a rental arrangement, really. Mm. And those ones are paid up almost every two years, not on a monthly basis. We looked at what are the daily needs in terms of what the farmers are going to need, and it just comes down to cash flow. Even when you look at when, what happens to them on a monthly basis, if you ain't just weeding, period. Let me break down a little bit how we grow the Moringa. So we use what's called a food forest model, where essentially we do a, a whole bunch of intercropping, where we plant different tree products in the same piece of land. So we don't do monocrop planting you'll find the Moringa intercropped with avocado trees and coffee, jackfruit intercropped with macadamia nuts. 
in such a way that there is a harmonious existence, but we are contributing to afforestation within that community. So for us, we're really excited about working in Bodongo Forest in partnership with USAID to help repair the damage that has already been done around the edges of Bodongo Forest by adding additional trees and then hopefully contributing to a bit of an improvement of the ecosystem, especially around climate change. You were able to move a few farmers from under the Human Development Index of $1 per day to $150 a month. So currently, the farmers we work with earn 200000 per month, which is about double what normally they, what they normally would make from subsistence farming and ancillary activities for income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's guaranteed. Sometimes even dollar a day is not even guaranteed for them. So we are able to actually create sustainable lifestyles above the medium poverty rate and sustain that so long as we are profitable in our manufacturing and value addition processes. Now, if you are able to actually scale this across the 7 million farmers that we actually have, boom, you immediately have your middle income status right there. I love the sound. I was also impressed by the impact, the funding or investors that were interested in this project and also how you went to all the banks in Kampala and no one could give you advance capital. What was that experience like? Yeah, we have a lot of banks and really, I don't know what they do because I realized they're... You they know have, what they do. They no, keep your money I, for you. <laughs> they keep your money for you, but I don't know what they do with it because in my thinking is like they take people's money and then they invest it, right? To make more money. But you can even take them a really good deal, but they don't know like how to deploy it in agriculture. So this model of ours that we actually had, we took it to the bank because we had an order. We had customers that were like, hey, this is an amazing impact model. We really want to work with you because you're delivering impact. That's what global customers are now looking for high impact supply chain products because they want to feel good. They don't want to feel like they're contributing to mass production that has zero impact, taking advantage of last mile residents, et cetera. So we designed a really good program that customers want to take advantage. However, getting working capital, which is something that um, in any other functional country, you take such an idea and contracts already from customers and the bank is like, okay, yeah, we'll bankroll this. Yeah. But you take it to a Ugandan bank and they look at you funny, especially when like, okay, which industry is this? Oh, you're in agriculture. So, yeah, we don't have any packages for you. We don't know what to do with this, right? Um, and that took me three months to actually get that. And anywhere that I actually went to, interest rates that were being quoted were like about 25%. And then you look at your margins, you're like, there's no way. I would no. go bankrupt immediately. I don't know what crazy person hands over their farm for such rates because no way. So we ended up going with a high impact, impact fund, yield fund, which is a partnership between the EU, IFAD, and Uganda's NSSF. They have that fund specifically invests in agriculture startups that are focused on value-added high impact supply chains. 
so that partnership ended up working really well and we're still with them. They're supporting us even through COVID. So it was really nice to actually have an impact fund that was actually looking towards that. And then later on, we partnered with the USAID with their biodiversity fund. So we're picking up partners left and right to try to make sure that we continue delivering impact to the last mile, but also proving a model that could actually be beneficial to that whole ecosystem. When I developed it, I didn't develop it just necessarily to own it, just to, okay, let me patent this. And then we were going to be the only ones that deploy it. I would love for other companies to actually reach out and actually say, hey, we would love to try this model with our business in agriculture. Um, I was also interested about the artificial intelligence you mentioned in the paper about farming. What are you talking about? Our farmers don't have access to real-time information most especially when it comes to agriculture, crop-specific information. So artificial intelligence could easily be rolled out if you developed like an app that could identify crops, triangulate exactly where you are, figure out what the weather, what the best time to actually be able to plant this crop based on weather patterns. You can calculate all of this and then also be able to provide insurance, crop insurance to these farmers based on based on rainfall patterns or weather patterns that are actually there. All of that can be calculated with the use of machine learning and artificial intelligence calculations. So the technology is there, deployable. You just have to design it for a specific use. In the future of SIP, we are designing a dashboard that will be embedded specifically with that artificial intelligence to be able to give real-time health data on all of our farmers, as well as provide a two-way communication to be able to engage farmers on where we are, how we're doing, and real-time information on the industry that they're in. We want to turn them into our into commercial farming entities slowly by slowly, move them along. I think mean, there's a term called BBCs, like before computer. So we're engaging <laughs> them as BBCs, but we're going to move yeah. them slowly to, to be digital native. Yeah. I know that's a behavior change that's going to take a long time, but that's why, we, that's why we're sold into this. We're not fly by night, not just here for one season. We're here for the long haul. That's good. That's good. What's the future then of the program? But I think we're delivering value for investors. We're delivering value to farmers. And we're also delivering value to both employees and customers. So there's a synergy that is aligning that we have to make sure that we design in such a way that we have a legacy company that can continue delivering the impact that we designed Secure Income Program to deliver. So we are beginning with 250 farmers now. Yeah, that we have in the sector, we'll have those probably by the end of October or so. We'll deploy those, begin shipping out to customers by uh, October as well. And then my ultimate goal is if by 2030, we have around 2,500 farmers in the supply secure income program supply chain, I will be mm-hmm. very happy because then at that point, we are really reaching scale. Because when you have that many farmers, now we're talking about excess of 10,000 people who are directly impacted by by this program. Now you're starting to knock on the door of a 1%, a 
positive effect on GDP now with that kind of money that's being circulated in the ecosystem. Brilliant. Teddy, thank you so much. Before we conclude this episode, you already highlighted that if we have to go further, we need a concerted effort from different stakeholders. So if you did have an opportunity to speak to an implementer or a policymaker, from your experience, where are the gaps and what would you recommend? Well, a secure income program requires money. I mean, it's a challenging program because what you're saying to the farmer is that I guarantee I will have your money on a monthly basis to pay you to continue producing products for us. So that requires a couple of things that have to be in place. One, the money has to be available, but also you have to have a guaranteed market for the products that you're creating because the revenue or the profits that you make from the products that you're selling should be the ones that are immediately available to pay farmers. So it would be perfect to have a government program where they actually said, okay, if you're, if you're deploying a secure income program, here is a grant to help you get started. Just kickstarting it can cost a bit of money depending on what, the, what product you, you're actually working on. You can't start a secure income program without money. Yeah. Second, you have to have companies that have social impact in their DNA. If you have pure profits in your DNA, it's going to be difficult for you to work with a bunch of farmers because you just want to focus on just your profitability. So it's important to, to have a social mission. Yeah. The very last question that we like to ask all our guests on the podcast on Uganda, tell us how you think Uganda is going to achieve a middle-class economy by 2014. So in my paper, I compare resources allocated to the sector for each farmer. When I look at the data, each farmer in Uganda is allocated approximately $57 per year for the 7 million farmers in the country. That's not enough to get us to middle income status. If you compare to the biggest global market, which is the United States, they allocate way more money for farmers, and they only have 2 million commercial farmers. So in order for us to get to middle income status, we really have to look at addressing the gap between look at the resources allocated to our biggest economic sector, which is agriculture. And we have to move the, our budgets to reflect the importance of that sector in terms of the value that is extracted from it. And we have to invest in manufacturing, invest in value-added processing. We have to look at being competitive globally because currently a majority of our food is imported when we can literally feed both of the country as well as the rest of the continent. However much oil that we extract, we're never going to reach by extracting. We just through extractive. If that was the sense, we would have reached middle income status a long time ago. But our key resource is agriculture, and we have to invest in that if there is going to be any semblance of us reaching middle income status. Number two, we also have to invest in education. We can't have 78% of our population under 30 50% of our population under 15, and we, and, and we 
put peanuts in our education system. You don't get middle income status with the majority of your population learning under mango trees. You don't. I hope you're listening to whom it may concern. <laughs> so it's an excellent note to end. Thank you so much. If you're inspired, go ahead to download the pepper. It's in the show notes below. Follow up with Teddy on Twitter or Instagram at TMS Rouge, or you can find me on my website, tmsrouge.com. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Teddy, why are you an angry African man? Because I'm not satisfied with the status quo. You have to be angry yeah. to want to be in the continent. Yeah, yeah. Give us your feedback. We're on Facebook, on Uganda Podcast, and Instagram. If you're looking for any other communication solutions or you'd like to be hosted on this platform, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Aggie Patricia Turomoy, and Aggie Patricia on Twitter.